What is new about the New Testament? How would you answer that question? Do we find a new God in the New Testament? Well, hopefully we don't think that. The book of Jeremiah has shown us God's hatred of evil. It's shown us his commitment to judging evil. And in the New Testament, we find Jesus talking about God's hatred of evil and his judgment more than anyone else. We also find Jesus in the New Testament presenting God as a father who loves his wandering children and longs for them to come home to him. Where did Jesus get that picture of God that he presented to us in the story of the prodigal son? He got it, at least in part, from Jeremiah chapter 31. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first part of that chapter, and we met the same father there as we find in Jesus' story in the New Testament. Jeremiah 31, in that chapter, God describes himself as the loving father who calls his children home. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So if we come back to our question, what is new about the New Testament, we can rule out the idea that we find a new God in the New Testament. He's the same loving Father He has always been. And we can rule out the idea that God's will has changed, that He expects something different from His people. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandments were, He did not give new commandments. He mentioned two Old Testament commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Those commands are found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19 in the Old Testament. So in the New Testament, it's not God that's new. It's not his will for human beings that is new. God's will can still be summed up in the call to love him and love others. The new thing we find in the New Testament is new people. It's described in lots of different ways. People who are made alive with Christ. People who are new creations. People who have crossed over from death to life. And this new people because they are new, are able to have a new relationship with God. And this morning we're going to look at one of the Old Testament passages where God promises to make this new people. It shows us the great privilege we have today. And it shows us what it means to be one of God's people. So if you haven't already turned to Jeremiah 31, you'll find it in the church Bibles on page 793, or in the larger print Bibles 12. Last time we looked at verses 2 to 26. Today we're going to read verses 27 to 40. And you will recognize parts of this because they were quoted in our New Testament reading earlier from Hebrews. Remember, God is speaking here to an exiled, devastated people. A people who have been torn down by his judgment. Judgment that came because of sin. And God says through Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 27, The days are coming, 
declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build up and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gareb and then to turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. This is God's word. A few verses earlier in this chapter, God said he would create a new thing on earth. And now in these verses, God describes that new thing. He calls it a new covenant. In a moment, we'll think about what a covenant is. But first, the first thing God says about the new thing he's going to create is that it will mean a clear personal responsibility. As God is looking to the future, he says in verse 29, in those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. What have grapes got to do with anything? Well, verse 29 is quoting a popular proverb among 
the exiled Israelites, a saying that they like to use. We know it was popular because the prophet Ezekiel quotes it as well. What does it mean? It's a way of saying we're not guilty and God's not fair. If you've never eaten sour grapes, try thinking about rhubarb without sugar. If you eat it, you make a face. And in this saying, the exiled Israelites are picturing themselves as the children. They're saying, our parents ate the sour stuff, but we're the ones getting the bitter taste. In other words, our ancestors sinned. They were the ones who rebelled against God. They were the ones who were unfaithful to him. But we are having to go through the bitter experience brought about by their sin, even though we've done nothing wrong. Are they right when they say they're suffering because of their parents' sin? Well, in a sense, yes. Generations of their ancestors were idolaters. They defied God in all sorts of ways. And eventually God's patience ran out. Judgment fell and the exile happened. Do the previous generations bear some responsibility for that? Are they guilty? Absolutely they are. But as this current generation repeats this saying about sour grapes, they are denying they have any responsibility of their own. They're saying it's all our ancestors' fault. We've never touched a sour grape ourselves. Not us. That's what the exiles are saying, but we know it's not true. God sent Jeremiah to preach his heart out to this generation. And we've seen earlier in the book they either ignored Jeremiah or they made fun of him or they plotted to kill him. This generation have eaten their own share of sour grapes. They have defied God. Their bitter experience is not all their parents' fault. So in verse 30, when God speaks about a future time when everyone will die for their own sin, he is not saying, in the past I punished people unfairly, and now I'm going to be fair. No, God is saying, I'm going to leave no room for excuses. I'm going to make your personal responsibility clear in a whole new way. So that you are faced with the fact that whatever your parents might have been like, whatever circumstances you were born into, whatever cards you were dealt in life, good or bad, each of you has to take responsibility for your own sin and rebellion against me. Yes, every human being is impacted by their background and their ancestry. Sometimes impacted in very significant ways. But God says your background and ancestry do not determine your standing with me. You cannot use those things as excuses. And in this new thing I'm going to do, I will make it clear. 
Everyone is accountable for their own personal response to me. You can't get in with me because of your parents' obedience, and you're not shut out in the cold from me because of your parents' disobedience. God promises the new thing he will do will bring clear personal responsibility. And the new thing then is explained in verses 31 to 40. God calls it a new covenant. In the ancient world, kings would set out their relationship with their people in the form of a covenant. The covenant defined the terms of the relationship. Now, the people didn't get to decide how they related to the king. The king set the terms. And it's the same with God. He is the great king of his people. And he sets the terms for the relationship. That's clear in these verses. As God says over and over, I will, I will, I will. Seven times in this passage as a whole. This is God's covenant. And it gives the terms of a new relationship with God. Look at verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Notice when God speaks about the old covenant, that was the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. When God speaks about that, he does not say there was anything wrong with that old covenant. God's commands were perfect, holy, and good. Nor was there any breakdown in God's faithfulness. He was a faithful husband. His love didn't grow cold. The problem was the people. Verse 32 says, they broke the covenant. And the Old Testament shows us they broke it not just once, but repeatedly over many generations. The old covenant failed because the people were covenant breakers by nature. And so God promises a new covenant where he will create a people transformed from the inside out. Look at verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Paul Mallard explains that in the Bible, the heart is the deep inner driving force at the center of all that we are. It is what steers us and shapes us and determines our decisions. It is your authentic self, the core of your being. It is where all our dreams, our desires, and our passions live. The heart is like a spring from which waters flow. Your heart is the essence of who you are. And here is how God describes the current state of the people's hearts. This is from Jeremiah 17. 
Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. For these people, sin is at the essence of who they are. And the rest of the Bible confirms that wasn't only true for the people of ancient Judah. It's the condition we're all born into. We're born with sin deeply set in the core of our being. It steers us, it shapes us, and it determines our decisions. It clouds all of our dreams, our desires, and our passions. We want our own way. We want our will to be done. We want to be God. No one has to teach a toddler to have temper tantrums. Their desire to have their own way rules in their hearts. And as adults, we might not all scream and stamp our feet quite so much as toddlers do, or quite so often anyway, but that same desire rules our hearts. Even if we're more dignified about it on the outside, in our hearts, we want to be God. But here, God promises to do heart surgery. He promises to inscribe His law on human hearts. Behind this word law is the Hebrew word Torah, which means instruction. And that certainly includes commands, which is probably the first thing we think about. But it's more than just commands. It's all of God's word to us. His word that reveals his will for all of our lives. And notice, God does not say he's going to change his law. At no point does God say, I've changed my mind about my instruction. Or, I didn't explain myself well, let me try harder. Or, I want to make a few corrections to what I said. No, God's will, his law for human beings has always been good. It's always been perfect. And it has always been for our good. It's not going to change, but God says our relationship to his law is going to change. At Mount Sinai, God's law was inscribed on stone tablets that were given to Moses. The people had God's instruction, clear and plain. It was literally carved in stone for them. But over generations, the people resisted God's law because they still had sin engraved on their hearts. And here, God says the new thing he's going to do is to create a people who have his law engraved inside of them. That will be what's engraved on their hearts instead of sin. What does that mean? It means God will remake sinful people. He will transform people who at the core of their being love to go their own way and do their own will. He will remake them into people who at the core love God and his word. Who desire and delight to do his will. 
So this is a promise not of reformation, but of transformation. In Jeremiah's day, earlier on, King Josiah oversaw a great reformation in Judah. He had God's law taught throughout the land where it hadn't been before. He got rid of the idols and the idol priests that were all over the land. Josiah was dedicated. His reform was thorough. But in the end, his reformation failed because Josiah couldn't change people's hearts. For a while, yes, the people of Judah cleaned themselves up on the outside. They changed their behavior for a while because it suited them. But they were unchanged on the inside. So when Josiah the reformer died, the people went right back to what their hearts really wanted to do. And that's why all attempts to reform society through outward changes will ultimately fail. Whether it's communism trying to create utopia by equalizing everything economically, whether it's enthusiastic Christians trying to bring in God's kingdom through politics, as well-intentioned as all those things might be, they will always fail. Because what's really needed is transformed hearts. Hearts that love to do what's right. Instead of coming up with more ingenious and more educated ways to twist the law and break it and get around it. Of course, we're not saying reform can do no good. Certainly, it is better for everyone when the laws of society follow God's wisdom. Because his wisdom is good for us. But reform will never be enough. The only true solution to our brokenness is the solution that starts at our core and works its way out in our words and our actions. And that is what God is promising here. He's not promising a big new effort to bring superficial change. This is about the very deepest change in what we love. At the end of verse 33, God says, people who are changed in that way will truly experience what it means for God to be their God and for them to be his people. Transformed hearts will transform our relationship with God and they will transform human community. Look at the middle of verse 34. God says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now that is not promising that everyone in society will be part of this new transformed people. It's promising the old divisions are not going to apply anymore. This will be a people where no one has special standing or special knowledge. All will share the same knowledge and relationship with God. Kings, emperors, and commoners. Adults, children, rich and poor, church leaders, church members. Whatever their background, whatever their skills or resources, 
whatever their education, they'll all stand on one level together because they all know the Lord. That's what God promises to do. How is he going to do it? Well, the end of verse 34 explains this new people will be a people transformed by God's forgiveness. God says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The word for is crucial to all this. That word tells us this is what will bring about the heart transformation we've been talking about. This is the basis and foundation for this new people and this new covenant, this new relationship with God. It's God's forgiveness that will make people new. His forgiveness is what will take hearts that are engraved with sin and transform them into hearts that love him and love his word. His forgiveness will bring a new community of people who stand utterly equal because they all know him. God's new covenant will not be based on human achievement. It will be based on an act of divine love. God will forgive sinners. And because they're forgiven, he will change them and bring them close to him. When did God make good on this promise? When did he deliver this new covenant? Well, on the night before his execution, Jesus Christ sat around a table with his disciples. He lifted up a cup of blood-red wine, and he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Matthew in his gospel adds another statement from Jesus at that same meal. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus is saying, this wine will always be a reminder to you of how God brought his heart-transforming forgiveness to the world. It was through my death on the cross. I poured out my lifeblood so you could be made new from the inside out. How do you and I enter into God's new covenant? How do we receive this new relationship with God that transforms us from the inside out? We take personal responsibility for our sin. We stop making excuses for it and we own it. As bad as our parents might have been, as harsh and difficult as our teacher or our boss or our spouse might be, as powerful and persuasive as all our temptations might be, we stop blaming our sin on others and their sour grapes. We stop blaming it on our difficult circumstances. We get on our knees before Jesus, the crucified Savior, and we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive my sin and make me new. 
Give me a love for you. Give me a desire to live for you and do your will. And he will. It's that simple. Forgiveness and new life is that close to us. Jesus died to make it that close. There are no mountains to climb to receive this. There are no pilgrimage. Pilgrimages needed. There's no probation periods where we show God what we're doing to try and clean up our act. Just simple faith that the blood of Jesus was enough. Christianity is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about being made a new person. So come to Jesus. Put your trust in him and you will be forgiven and changed by the Lord who loves with an everlasting love. And it is an everlasting love. The final verses tell us this new covenant relationship with God brings about a people who are secure and clean forever. Look at verse 35. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Now this promise of the new covenant is very clearly being addressed to Israel. That is Jeremiah's audience as he speaks. But way back in chapter 1 of this book, when God first called Jeremiah, he told him these prophecies and these promises are ultimately for the nations. Somehow this new covenant will be for the whole world. And at the arrival of the new covenant, we discover the nation of Israel was the start of something much, much bigger than Israel. The new covenant people started with a little group of Israelites, the 12 disciples of the New Testament. Those disciples were sent to the world with the message of forgiveness in Jesus. And now the new covenant people includes men and women from every nation on the earth. All those who trust in the crucified Savior. And this worldwide people of God are secure in their position. God says the new covenant is never going to become the used-to-be new covenant. There will never be a new covenant too. It's not like the iPhone. God says the failure of my new covenant is as likely as me losing control of my created universe. Or you humans fully measuring and comprehending my universe. The point is, neither of those things is ever going to happen. The development of modern science has only confirmed the truth of that. 
The more we learn, the more complexity and vastness we find. We cannot fully comprehend or control creation, but God can. And so his new covenant will never fail. And then from contemplating the sun and the stars, we bounce down to the streets of Jerusalem in verse 38. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gareb and then turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. This is clearly talking about a real place with real walls and real gates. And certainly the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt after the exile in Babylon finished. These places are mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, which describes that rebuilding. But just as the New Testament widens the new covenant people to include every people on earth, so it widens the home of the new covenant people to include the whole earth. In the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem is another name for the new earth. And the point that carries over from Jeremiah 31 to the new Jerusalem is the holiness of the place. Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day was anything but holy. It was a place of sin. It was contaminated and filthy with all sorts of evil. We've seen them earlier in the book. Greed oppression of the poor, the shedding of innocent blood, including child sacrifice, idolatry and promiscuity. But God says his new Jerusalem will be so different. As verse 40 says, it will be holy to the Lord. The book of Revelation says about the new Jerusalem, nothing impure will ever enter it. God has prepared a place for his new covenant people where we will be secure and clean forever. So if you were listening to those earlier verses about being transformed, and if you thought to yourself, well, I don't seem very transformed. I certainly don't feel very transformed. And I don't notice the people around me being very transformed either. If you felt like that, then realize this is a long-term thing. When you first came to Jesus, you did receive God's forgiveness in a moment. He did change you in that moment. You did become a new creation with a new heart. If you have come to Jesus, you are not what you used to be. And you are not yet what you will be. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, we are being transformed. That work has already begun in you. 
Today, the spirit of the risen Jesus is at work in you. And that work will be complete when Christ returns. When he returns, we shall be like him. That's God's promise. You will be as clean as Jesus is. You will be as devoted to the Father and his will as Jesus is. And in the meantime, as you press on towards that day, you are secure in God's love. It wasn't your greatness that got you into God's new covenant people. And so you cannot lose your place through a lack of greatness. You're in because of Jesus. We remember that every time we lift the cup at the communion table and drink it together. The new covenant is not a covenant in our performance. It's a covenant in Christ's blood. We are in God's family because of him. That's our security. He is our security. And as God's new covenant people, we do not make excuses for our sin. We take responsibility for it. That's part of having a new heart. We don't try to cover up our sin. We don't try to defend it anymore. We keep turning from it. And every time we do turn from it, every time we fail and admit our failure and come back to the cross in repentance, we find that our Savior has already done enough for our forgiveness. In Him, we stand secure. However you're feeling this morning, just let that sink in. We sing, don't we? In Christ alone, my hope is found. That is the beauty and the blessing of God's new covenant. We're going to join in praising him for that covenant now. We're going to sing a song that we learned last Sunday evening, so you may not all know it, but I think it's easy to pick up. And it describes really the beauty and blessing of God's new covenant in Christ. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.